Today, we are going to conclude our series of judges, a culture of failure. And today's word from us uh, could not be better encapsulated by that motto, a culture of failure. I wish today that we can say that there's going to be a lot of hope and a lot of optimism, but that does not uh, happen in God's word in the passages we are about to read. We do not have a happy ending. We do not have a judge uh, with God's spirit who comes in and saves the day. We don't have an angel of the Lord who intervenes for the Israelites. Instead, rather, we are left with the consequences of worldly leadership when the blind leads the blind and begs the question, where is God during those circumstances? Even though we love to read God's word for hope and optimism and hearing to see amazing stories of what God can do, sometimes God's word tells us things of just depravity, of what happens in the darkness of human hearts. Um, and just the depth of what sin can bring all of us. And we see this all around us even today, whether it is the earthquake in Turkey or uh, school children and hospital patients being bombed uh, in Ukraine, just senseless, senseless uh, killings and um, innocent people suffering for no apparent reason. And as we read through our passage today, I'm sure you're going to join me and just say, God, where are you? Where are you, Lord? And sometimes it's hard because it doesn't seem like God is always there. And this is definitely the case for the Israelite people as we come to the end of Judges. If you remember back in 2012, there was a famous internet sensation a campaign that uh, got more attention than even the presidential candidates of that time called Coney 2012. And what this uh, campaign did uh, by an organization called Invisible Children was it highlighted the atrocities of a African warlord named Joseph Coney so there is this person who none of us has heard about. Uh, the mass media was not covering it, but nevertheless, there was just this evil man who not only led in some of the most uh, atrocious um, behavior in sub-Saharan Uganda, but led children, um, children soldiers to carry out uh, just the worst acts of evil. So even though Invisible Children was able to highlight for the world something that was just so atrocious and tragic, we can only imagine that things like that still are happening beneath our noses, that human darkness, human sin is active, and Satan is, um, every, is everywhere within our world without us even knowing it. And as we'll see in our story, uh, this is a reality for the Israelite people as they lead without a leader, without um, God showing them what they should do or giving them direction, but we see a full sale rejection of God's word. So our verse today comes to us from Judges 17, verse 6, and Judges 21, 25. And I'll go ahead and uh, read our verse today. Not a long one. It says, um, 
176, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Um, and Judges 21, 25, in those days, there was no king. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? It sounds um, almost the exact same verse. So uh, what I wanted to do there was to introduce you to a new vocab word today. So I want you to walk away from here learning at least one new fact, okay? Uh, there is in the Bible different literary devices. This one in particular is called an, an inclusio, okay? In the Bible was originally written in Hebrew, and Greek, the authors did not have access to many of the grammatical luxuries we have today, like commas or periods, paragraphs, or even a lot of space in between the words. So that forced the authors to be creative and use all kinds of different literary um, methods in order to tell the audience and communicate effectively uh, a unit that was going to happen. And one of the ways they used was an inclusio where you'll have one verse that repeats itself at the beginning and then one that will kind of bracket and repeat that same motto uh, that kind of thematically capture what the narrative or what the poem uh, is all about. So what we're about to read as we walk through uh, Judges 17 through the, the end at 21 is that this motto will just echo throughout the stories of a time where there is no king of Israel, no godliness, uh, no godly king to lead them, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. So as we walk through, I want you to, to feel free to turn in your Bibles at Judges 17, and we're going to kind of walk through um, this narrative and, and understand what this inclusio is telling us. In our first story, these are, these are two stories, by the way, so two stories that are going to capsulate what we're going to talk about. Um, was this theme of doing right in our own eyes. The first story is in chapter 17 through 18, and it focuses on a Levite named Jonathan and the spiritual failure of the tribe of Dan. So spiritual failure is going to be the theme of this first story. It takes place, if you remember in, in chapter 16 where uh, Timothy left off, we were uh, ending on the story of Samson and so this is taking place sometime uh, long afterwards, and the uh, tribe is no longer um, together. There is no uh, united um, effort from God. There is just lawlessness and division once again. And although it's not explicitly stated in the text, we can gather that the Philistines have finally succeeded in uh, not driving away Israel, but specifically Samson's tribe of Dan off of their land. And it seems that the other tribes of Israel could care less about the situation. During this time, you're also introduced to a wealthy man named Micah from the hills of Ephraim. He goes and he steals a, an enormous sum of silver from his mother, uh, so much so that it's probably her pension that she can live the rest of her life with. And she curses whoever it is that, that has stolen her, her precious savings. Um, later, Micah has a, a guilt in his conscience, goes to his mother, admit the, the sin that he did, and gives back the silver. And so 
the mother accepts Micah's apology, and better yet, what she's gonna do as a consolation will go and go to the local blacksmith and have a small portion of that savings and create this idol out of it, this, this idol statue. And this might have been a more common practice among the um, polytheistic uh, tribes of Canaanites that were around Israel, but as we know uh, explicitly from the first and second commandment that this was not uh, to be tolerated by the people of Israel at all. And so uh, he makes this idol and he does even worse. Not only does he have this idol to worship, he makes a mockery of God's priesthood. Uh, as we know from Leviticus, God has chosen a specific tribe, uh, a, a specific people group from the lineage of Aaron to run uh, the one and only official kavod uh, uh, or house of the Lord, which is in the tabernacle, uh, later Solomon's temple. At this time, the tabernacle was the only legitimate place for worship. But he makes this whole sham of a priesthood with his own vestments and an ephod and assigns his sons to be the priesthood of, other than this, this imitation of um, the Levites. And so this town is now corrupted by Micah's influence and we are once again introduced to a new character, so a Levite uh, named Jonathan from Bethlehem. He, uh, we can already glean from his situation that there is just a complete ne uh, neglect of the Levitical order, that the prestigious Levites who are in charge of being the moral center, in charge of the rituals and uh, upkeeping the tabernacle have been desecrated to being homeless. Uh, Jonathan is wandering, looking for a livelihood. If you remember from Deuteronomy, Moses specifically instructed uh, the Israelites to um, to you know, rely on giving resources, whether it's for the olive oil, for uh, the sacrifice on the altar, or for land. Uh, the Levites did not have their own allotment of land, but rather they had these uh, little enclaves throughout the districts of Israel in order to, to live off of. But we can see that there is just no um, thoughtfulness or no investment given to God's people the Levitical order, and now you have a priest, now homeless, looking for wherever he can get a livelihood. Okay, so as he's wandering and he's going about, he stumbles onto Micah's home, and Micah sees the perfect opportunity. How better could I make my idolatry than taking a legitimate priest of the Lord and legitimizing my own idol? How familiar is that? And so Jonathan, in his desperation, goes, he accepts the offer, uh, takes the bride money, and goes and, you know, he's offered room and board, clothing, everything, his, a salary, everything he needs to be taken care of if he just becomes a priest to the sham priesthood. Meanwhile, if we go back to the beginning, we talked about the tribe of Dan. They were kicked out of the land by the Philistines. They had no help from the other tribes. And now they are sending out five scouts to look out of the land uh, to find a, a pleasant area where they can live in. And just like Jonathan, these five scouts stumble across Micah's home to find rest. The scouts befriend Jonathan and ask him to inquire to the Lord if their search will be successful. He affirms that it will, and so they depart with optimism in their search for land. So they go, they depart, uh, they go north, uh, way up north past the Sea of Galilee to the uttermost northern boundary of Israel near where uh, 
Phoenicia, or modern-day Lebanon is, and finds a peaceful village called Laesh. So Laesh is just this, you know, resourceful town in the middle of nowhere. Uh, there's, you know, resources everywhere. There's um, people at peace. There's no military. There's no neighbors that can come and intervene on their behalf. So it is just the perfect little place to, to plunder uh, for the Danites to move and, and to uh, kick this peaceful group out of their land. So the scouts return, tell the good news to the Danite tribe, and so the elders will assemble about 600, an army of 600 men to go and to overtake this little village. So the scouts go, leads the way, tells them where it is, and on the way, they once again go to Micah's home. And this time, they just break in, come into Micah's house, steal his um, ephod, steal his idols, steal the vestments, just steal everything. And at the gate, Jonathan confronts them. He's like, hey, wait, why are you taking my master's stuff? Like, what are you guys doing? And instead of giving a rationale or a reason behind what they're doing, instead, they he bribe them. They give him an offer he cannot refuse and tells Micah, you know, it's great that you're, you know, a, a high priest of a household, but wouldn't it be better if you could be high priest of a tribe of Israel? And what do you think Jonathan decides to do? Of course, he can't refuse because Micah isn't serving. Micah, he's not loyal to God, certainly, uh, but what is he loyal to? The highest bidder. Who can give him the best platform? Who can give him uh, the most money, the most riches? And isn't that ring true to our culture today? Where so much corruption, so much uh, focus is on the shallow of getting, um, you know, whether uh, it's churches that are focusing so much on filling seats or focusing on the bottom line, there is so much leadership that is looking for results, looking for the best outcome, but they're not following God. They're not serving others. They're in it for themselves. And so Jonathan captures that essence so perfectly. So the army continues going north, and they go, you know, they're taking... Um, their new priest, their new uh, idol, and then um, Micah wakes up and goes and, you know, reads a village, looks for him and says, hey, you know, that's my stuff. You know, what are you doing with my priest? What are you doing with my idol? You know, give it back. It's mine. And Dan turns around and basically says, uh, what are you going to do about it? You know, you and what army? <laughs> the Greek philosopher, uh, uh, Rathsamachus, um, hard to pronounce his name, he famously once said that might makes right. And how true is that? When there is no objective morality, when there is godlessness, where there is no standard other than what the world decides, what happens? It's not about rule of law. It's not about treating your neighbors like yourself. What is it about? It's about whoever has the biggest sword is always right. Whoever has the biggest gun, whoever can um, put and impact their will onto others is who is in the right. And so without God, without an objective moral ground and moral center for the tribe of Israel, this makes perfect sense. And so Micah cowers and leaves sad that his idol and priesthood have left him. So they go and continue into Laesh. Of course, the 600 soldiers will plunder the land and overtake the peaceful village and burn it to the ground. 
And once they rebuild it, they will rename the town after themselves Dan and establish a new holy site and holy order with Jonathan as the head priest. The first story ends with a twist. We learned that Jonathan isn't just an ordinary Levite. If you look in your Bible, what is he? He is the son of someone special, the son of Gershom. If you remember from Exodus 2, that was the firstborn son of Moses and Zephora. So can you imagine just in two generations how decimated the Israelite people, how empty they become from having the most prestigious prophet, servant of the Lord of all time, the amazing leader, Moses, who led his people out of Egypt into the promised land. His grandson is now a priesthood of a sham imitation of the Lord, perpetuating idolatry for the tribe of Dan. How the mighty have fallen into the sin. So as we see the first story, we can see how spiritual decay of the Israelites is unfolding. It started with the neglect of the priesthood. The tribes are replacing their legitimate Levitical priesthood with something of their own creation. And aren't we just like Micah, where the world today, not only is it abandoning the word of God, it is twisting the word of God to fit their own agenda. So it's one thing to say, hey, you know, Christianity isn't for me, you know, I'll do something else. And it's another thing completely to go to God's word and say, no, actually, this is what it means. No, actually, this is what my feelings say is what God is saying. And that is the most dangerous thing we can do. When we go and we pick and choose certain aspects of Jesus, maybe we like his mercy and his grace, but, you know, this final judgment, this hell, uh, this repenting and turning away from our sin, well, ah, let's, you know, let's ignore that. And so today, that is so uh, true that we just pick and choose what we want. And like Micah, we create our own sham idol of what God is instead of following his word when it's inconvenient. Our second story talks about the moral failure of the Israelite people, specifically the tribe of Benjamin. And as we, it continues this trend of the spiritual decay and really um, pinnacles to one of the most uh, disturbing episodes I can think of not only in Judges, but the entire Bible. But nevertheless, it shows and reflects just how broken and dark the world can be without God, without godly leaders intervening. So if you want to follow along now, starting in chapter 19, we, uh, the story focuses on a new character, an, an unnamed Levite and his concubine, and um, the sinful acts of the tribe of Benjamin. And as we'll see, the story gets from bad to just comically over-the-top terrible. We start out with a story with a Levite and a concubine, which is already a bad situation, but to make things worse, um, they, they fall out, you know, the, uh, the concubine will go and live at her father's house, uh, but the Levite will eventually come, win her heart back, and uh, they go to part together back to the Levite's home. And as that's happening, as they're traveling back, you know, it gets to be evening, it gets to be dark, and they say to themselves, uh, the servant points out and says, hey, you know, there's, a, there's this little place in Jebus, you know, Jebus was... Um, 
the place that Jebusites led until David uh, drove them out in 2 Samuel. So this Canaanite tribe, let's stay with them. They're close by. It's getting dark. Let's go there. And um, the Levite insists, no, let's not go to these savage uh, foreigners. Let us go to a you know, fellow godly brethren um, and go to this village near uh, Benjamin, which we will see is the most ironic statement uh, that could be made. So they go, uh, stay uh, at the town center, and, and back in this time, the town center was a place where um, the locals will go and take in weary travelers for food and rest and a place for the night. And the first red flag is like, nope, there's nobody there. Nobody is taking them. And so eventually an old man comes and, and takes a party to get rest and food and everything that they need. Um, but eventually um, something bad happens. And it's an event that very much parallels what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot. And the unfortunate thing is that there is no angel this time. There is no blinding light to save the day. But we live with the consequences of the depravity of this village. And again, this is not just any village. This is a Benjamite, a, a child of Israel that is happening. But uh, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, this villainous mob will just knock, 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 asking to have their way with the guests. And because there's no intervention, the Levite just callously takes his beloved concubine and throws them to the masses outside. And in the morning, she's found dead at the front door, brutalized and killed. Um, so the Levite eventually comes home and um, alerts the other 12 tribes in the most grotesque way we can imagine. Uh, but it gets attention, it gets buzz around the other tribes. And so they are disgusted, they are ready to do something about this atrocity of this uh, killing of this innocent woman. So they convene at Mizpah and plan, you know, they hear out the Levite and say, okay, what are we gonna do next? And without much thought into it, they just kind of come in mass and like a mob goes to the land of Benjamin and demand uh, the people at the village at Jabiah to be turned in for their crimes and be punished. The Benjamins refuse and this sparks a civil war between the tribes of Israel. So the other 11 tribes will unite and coalesce and invade the village of Jubea to bring it to justice, while the Benjaminites will throw them off. They will arm themselves and prepare for the invasion. And this leads to a three-day siege of the village. At first, the Benjamites are resolute and formidable. They uh, ward off the Israelites who are constantly having to retreat back to uh, Bethel. And uh, you can tell from the text that their heart is not in it. They cannot go and bear going day in and day out, slaughtering their own brothers, their own kinsmen. And they're having this hard reality that is unbelievable, but yet true, that they are forced uh, to put their own people to the sword. But the third day, um, basically the, the blockade ends. Uh, the coalition will take a play out of Joshua's playbook when he overtook the city of Ai right after Jericho. What they'll do is the one army, one unit, will draw out the Benjamites to get to the road out of the city. An ambush unit will then come in, uh, pillage the town. There'll be smoke, you know, signaling to the army that, oh my gosh, we're overtaken. And the two unit armies will sandwich in between uh, crushing the Benjamites. 
And so this brutal battle results in essentially all the Benjamites being wiped out. Um, only a few hundred are able to retreat to the caves nearby uh, while the women and children are slain by the sword. Four months pass after this battle, and the people are living with regret. They're like, how can we wipe out our own tribesmen, our own kinsmen? And so uh, to right this wrong, they do not do it in the most guided way possible. One thing to help keep in mind is it wasn't mentioned earlier during the assembly, but there were two vows apparently before the battle commenced. And uh, again, just like Jephthah, these are just foolish, foolish vows. Uh, the first was that they could not offer any of their daughters to the Benjamites. That was their first vow they took at Mizpah. The second was that they were going to slaughter anyone who did not join the coalition to battle in Jabiah. So, you know, they look at, you know, whatever their roster was back in the day to see who wasn't present at the battle. And they had this one village called Jebesh Gilead. And so, they go, they follow through on their second vow to destroy it, but they make themselves a small loophole and say, well, what happens if we just took the maidens, the virgins of the village, and gave them to the Benjamites in order for them to uh, reclaim the inheritance and to uh, perpetuate their lineage? And so, again, being wise in their own eyes, that's exactly what they did. Um, so just as they were at the edge of extinction, they get um, somewhat restored. And after doing this, they, they find another issue. There, there's not quite enough virgins. So what do the elders do? They have yet another genius idea. What they do is they um, come together and tell the Benjamites, hey, there's a uh, Passover, one of the major pilgrim festivals, it's not specified, but there's going to be this festival in Shiloh, and they should go, you know, there'll be maidens dancing there, you know, go and take for yourselves any who are, who are um, you know, dancing there. And if any of the brothers, if any of the fathers come to complain to us, you know what, I'm going to have a bulletproof argument uh, to be generous. You know, you guys need to be generous. And not only that, by giving away your daughters, you won't be breaking that first vow because you won't be um, giving away your daughters. Instead, they will be forcibly taken from you. You know, what good of a deal is that? So look how ridiculous and deprived these people have become. And so nevertheless, they follow through uh, on this action of, of taking for themselves uh, these women during the ceremony, rebuilding, remarrying, and the tribes, proud of themselves, say, okay, mission accomplished, return to their land, and the book ends. It ends. That's exactly how the book ends. And there is no happy ending. There is no true resolution and as many of you maybe not even have ever heard of the story before, and you're reading this, you're like, is this really in the Bible? Is this really? Did the tribes of Israel really do something atrocious? And all we can do is look back at, as the audience and be like, God, where are you? Where were you? Why did you not stop this? And that is the hardest takeaway to realization when we see just how bad sin can be. We see from the Benjamites that their temptation, their lust, turned and sparked a wildfire. The callous Levites, the Benjamites, they led to an innocent woman being killed, which in turn led to thousands and thousands of Benjamites being wiped out for no reason. We see compromise and moral failures sinking deeper and deeper the people 
And this cycle that we've seen throughout Judges, where the people will fall, give into idolatry, and then later on, you know, God will send a, a savior, a judge, to come and save the day. And we see this not even in Judges, but throughout the Old Testament and into the New, where the people of Israel will fall back into temptation, back into the worst sins. And the prophets will tell of a time where God will rescue and save the people in an ultimate uh, salvation for everybody. So whether it's Jeremiah and, and Isaiah, they all tell about this great salvation where there is hopelessness. And little do they know that this ultimate sense of hope wouldn't be revealed until the person of Jesus. When Jesus came, he did not only give hope to a particular tribe or a particular nation, but all of mankind, all of us are invited by his blood to be redeemed. And we might not be seeing redemption here on this earth. We know by the book of Revelation, things are not going to be pretty. Uh, we know that things are not going to all work out the way we want. But at the end of the story, God and Jesus are going to be standing triumphantly. What I love about the books of the Acts of the Apostles is you have these imperfect apostles of God, whether it's Peter and especially Paul, just these sinful, sinful people going and pleading with people to accept Jesus. They're being stoned, they're being persecuted, and they do miracles, they do great things, but they don't, you know, they don't take away famine. They don't take away disease. They don't take away um, innocent blood being shed. But what they could do is give us comfort, knowing that there is ultimate restoration in Christ. You know, as a pastor, I, I, I don't envy those um, in Michigan right now where a pastor has to turn uh, to a mother and dad and explain why God allowed uh, their 18-year-old son or daughter to be slaughtered at Michigan State this past week. I can't imagine going to be the other side of a mom and a dad whose eight-year-old daughter was raped and brutalized and found in a creek. What can we say? What can we do? What, we can't even imagine what that situation could be like, but all we can do is act like the apostles, have a broken heart, and say that there is hope. There is hope beyond this world. This world is messed up. This world is tragic. This world is going to lead us in the deepest and darkest places, but there is hope in Jesus. There is hope in the Lord. And, you know, with, with tears in my eyes, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to see the worst Satan and the world has for each and every one of you. And I pray we never have to live or have such breaking news happen to any one of us. But know that even in our brokenness, there is hope in Jesus. There is hope that God has a way and has a path even through death. So as we conclude our message, conclude our series in Judges, know that even when God feels absent in your life, when there feels like there's no hope turning to you, I beg to you to turn to Jesus. I beg to you, those who have even engaged in sin, who've engaged in the worst imaginable things and feel like there's no hope, no hope for redemption for your life, I pray, look to Jesus. Only he can redeem what is lost and only he can be a way of salvation for each and every one of us. So as we conclude, 
We'll now go to our final uh, song of response. Um, Wherever he leads, I'll go. And I pray as we listen to the song that we, like what uh, Tangela mentioned in her verse, are not leading with selfishness, with our own desires, doing what's right in our own eyes, that we're not twisting God's word to hear what we want to hear, but that we lead as a servant, as the least of those, and being a servant of all. As we tell the good news of Jesus, that we are disgusting, decrepit sinners, and we have found an amazing, unblemished Savior. Let's go to the Lord. Father, I pray, God, that as we stand one last time and, and, wish, and listen to, to follow as you lead, God, that, Lord, we, we have seen and heard uh, just horrendous things today, God. Lord, we, um, we hear how lost the world can be, how Satan has a grasp on everything, God. But, Lord, know that there is hope and salvation and stability only found in your Son, Jesus Christ. That, God, no matter what we're going through, no matter what trials are ahead of us, that, God, you are going to be with us through famine, through disease, through storms, Jesus. And I pray, God, for each and one of us here, that, God, that is going through a storm, that's going through a tragedy, Lord, know that this is, the end is never the end, God. You have obliterated death. We are following you, Jesus. We lay down our hope, our baggage, everything, God, and we leave it at the foot of the cross and we'll follow you to the ends of the earth. May that be a prayer for each of us today, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.